So turn with me to the passage on which today's teaching is based. It's Matthew chapter 5. I'll be reading and focusing on verses 8 through 12, but I'm going to read the entire passage uh, for context for all of us here this morning. Matthew chapter 5. Now when he, that's Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And this is God's word. Now, we're going to come back to Matthew chapter 5 verses 8 through 12. You know, if you've been with us, if you're new or visiting, or if you've been with us, I uh, just wanted to share again that we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. That's uh, chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the Gospel according to Matthew. And you need to know something about this. Jesus, in this particular part of the Sermon on the Mount, is not talking about eight different types of people. People who are poor in spirit versus people who mourn versus people who are meek versus people who show mercy. Rather, Jesus is talking about one kind of person. He's talking about genuine Christianity. He's talking about the characteristics of people who are from and are part of God's kingdom. And so the Sermon on the Mount is about what? How the gospel gives us the power to change. Because we have a new heart, verse 8, he says, Blessed are the pure in heart. You are shaped on the inside. And as a result, verse 9, you're peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. The gospel shapes you on the outside. And because you have this new heart, because you have this new motivation, you live with new purpose, new mission. And as a result, because it's such a counterintuitive way of living life, Christians are persecuted. So there are three points, very simple. What's it mean to be pure in heart? What's it mean to be a peacemaker? And why then are we persecuted? Pure in heart, peacemaking, persecution. That's the life of a Christian. Verse 8, first point. Blessed are the pure in heart, he says. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart for you will see God. What that means is this. What saves you is not what you do on the outside but how you're transformed, how you're changed on the inside. Because, you know, it's possible, as we've all tried New Year's resolutions, we all try, it's possible to show, to demonstrate good behavior without God. So Jesus is not talking about a Christian is somebody who shows such good behavior that God accepts him. But rather, Jesus is talking about transformation of the heart on the inside. He's talking about the inner person, that root, that core, what you're really after in life, what a person really believes, what a person really wants. 
He's saying you know, a Christian has desires and, and core beliefs that are pure. That's the mark of genuine Christianity. What's it mean to be pure? What's that mean? Psalm chapter 24, that's our call to worship this morning. The psalmist writes, Who may ascend to God's holy hill? And the answer is, He who has a clean hand, a pure heart, who doesn't lift up his soul to an idol. In other words, being pure means that you have this inner integrity, that your mind and your soul and your desires, they're singularly focused. It's integrated. They're not disconnected from one another. Your mind, your soul, your heart, your will, these things are all integrated as opposed to somebody who has a duplicitous heart. A person who has a duplicitous heart says on the outside they say they believe, but on the inside they're controlled by what they really want. And here it says that the person who ascends God's holy uh, hill is one who has a clean hand, pure heart, who doesn't lift up his soul to an idol. What is an idol? An idol is anything in your life that replaces God as the center of your motivation. In other words, an idol is something that controls your life, what really controls your life. For example, if your idol is wealth, then that means your life only has meaning to the degree that you have money. And your life loses meaning unless you have plenty of money. Then what's your greatest nightmare? A person who has wealth as an idol in their lives, their greatest nightmare is losing their job, losing their wealth. A dip in the economy is so great that they lose everything, a depression. And so they're constantly working to get ahead. They're constantly working to save. They're constantly working to build, to look for other channels, diversifying their portfolio, investing in other things, all these material things, so they can increase their wealth and thus their security and their power, and they can live. They're constantly working. The Bible says, those idols promise us freedom. If I have this, then I'll be happy. If I have this, then I'll have joy. But... They only deliver misery. That's why we're always overworked, fatigued, anxious, and depressed. And this generation, they say, scholars and commentators today all around the world say that this generation in particular is the most anxious and depressed generation in human history. A pure heart realizes that they're still trying to control their own life. And so, in a way, they've been treating God as, as a, like a consultant. You know, my life's okay. I just need to improve and get a little bit better. And so, they seek God the way we seek consultants, people who supplement our lives to improve our lives when really God is meant to be king. He's meant to control you, to control your life. A pure heart recognizes these idols and abandons them because you realize you can't control your own life. You have no control over life. And so you surrender control to Jesus. And Jesus gives you then the power to abandon your idols. And so the mark of having a pure heart, how do you know that your heart is pure? You become focused. You become singularly focused. Jesus says the greatest commandment is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. 
That means that your heart, mind, soul, strength, these things are integrated. In other words, you're not coming to God just to improve. You're not coming to God just for a supplement, like a vitamin. You're not coming to God just to get better. You're not praying to God just to get things. You're coming to God to get more of God. You're praying to God to get more of God. You have a life that's integrated. Your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. Your heart and your mind and your will, they're integrated. They're singularly bound together. Otherwise, there's a disconnect between the three. There's a disintegration between the three. That's what plays out. And it looks like this. If your faith is almost always based on your mind, being intellectually moved by Scripture, then if that's all you got in your faith, if that's all you're looking for, going for in your faith, you're going to lack a lot of love in your life. Your life will not be integrated. And that's not worshipful. That's not what honors God. If your faith is almost always based on your emotions, then you're going to lack change in your life. If your faith is almost always based on your obedience, what you do, then your life is going to lack renewal. It's going to lack worship. But when you're free from your idols, there goes the need to have to prove yourself. There goes just the doing for the sake of doing. There goes the need to have to build your own life up. There goes the pressure and the responsibility and the, and the jealousy and the misery. What's a life without that like? It's joyful. It's free. It's renewed. It's a new life. Your life becomes complete, whole. You become more of you, again, the way God has designed you. Jesus says you are blessed when it's like that. You are pure in heart. They will see God. See, in the Old Testament, you couldn't see God. You couldn't see God. You would die. That would destroy you. Then how do you see God? It's because your heart has been made new, pure. That's the first point. Verse 9, that's the second point. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. What does that mean? In the Bible, the peace that God is talking about is not about an inner serenity, not an inner calmness. Because the opposite of peace is what? War. Now, the gospel gives you a serenity at times. The gospel gives you a calmness, an inner poise. But here, Jesus is talking about the end of a war. In Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul says that the natural mind is at war with God. The natural mind is at enmity against God. You cannot submit to the law of God. You don't want to submit to the law of God. You're always at war with God for control over who owns your life. And so the only time that God ever came down, the only time that God ever made himself weak, the only time that he was born into the world to live with his people, you know what we did? We killed him because we're at war. Now, some of you are saying, wait a second. I never really hated God. I never ever said I hated God. I mean, I may not always obey God, but I definitely never hated God. And I want to submit to you that I believe that you're being genuine in what you're saying when you say that. But it's because your hatred is subterranean. Your hatred is very subtle. It's hidden. And unless you see how subtle and hidden it is, you will never be able to make peace with God. And that hatred that you have that's so subtle and hidden and subterranean, like a volcano that you can't see, one day erupts and destroys everything around you, including yourself. It will distort you and corrode your life. 
Because you see, when your heart and your mind and your will are integrated, we call that worship. But throughout the Bible, God says things that we just absolutely struggle with. We just absolutely have a hard time with. And so as a result, we say, because he said this, I can't believe it. I can't believe him. That's your mind saying, I reject God. I hate God. Or we make promises. We love to make promises and commitments. We're moved one day and we say, you know what? I'm going to go to church from now on. I'm going to give more. But then we break our promises. Naturally, what that's saying, and that's natural in our lives, our will is against God. And then there's this. We know We know, we hear over and over that God is a loving God, that God is our Father, that God is our provision. He is our grace. He is our forgiveness. In Him is the root of all genuine community. But because we feel lonely, because we feel at a loss, and we're desperate, we say, I need a boyfriend. I need a girlfriend in my life. What we're saying is, God, you can't fulfill my needs. You can't fulfill my needs. We are looking into eyes of an eternal community every week. And yet because we feel momentarily weak or lonely, we say to ourselves, who cares? I need a boyfriend. I need a girlfriend. That's how I'm going to be fulfilled. Or you see that loved one who's suffering in your life or that you've lost that loved one in your life. What do we say? Where was God when I needed him? Why didn't he help? What is that? That's anger. That's hate. That's anger. You know, Joseph Stalin, the great communist dictator, Joseph Stalin, they say, at least anecdotally from his own daughter who was there at his bedside before he died, they said that in bed, now Joseph Stalin went to seminary. I don't know if you knew that. He was a seminary student. They said that Joseph Stalin, at the end of his life, just before he died, rose up from his bed, looked to heaven, shook his fist at God, and then collapsed and died. Look, if you don't believe, if you're constantly breaking promises, or if you get angry at God because you don't get what you want or you lose something that you love, you're not loving God. You're hating God. You're hating God with your mind, or you're hating God with your emotions, or you're hating God with your will. But think about this. When Jesus died for his people, a people that hated him, That's why he died. When Jesus died for his people, the tombs emptied, the sky grew dark, the rocks split open, there was an earthquake. That's how big God's love was for his people. And yet we shake our fists at God and we remain resistant and cold and shallow all the time. That's war. That's war. That's hate. And until you see that you are oftentimes, we're always at war with God, that the root of our resistance, the root of our disbelief or unbelief, the root of our, of our uh, anger at times at God is because we are at war with God. Verse 9, Jesus says, you will never, you will never become a son of God. You will never become his child. You will never enter his kingdom. You know what the gospel is? The gospel is the end of the war. Whenever a king would enter into another, uh, would return home from a battle or home from a war, his heralds would proclaim a gospel. The word, very word gospel is the word good news, particularly when a king has conquered a country and you run through that country and say you are now set free. That is the meaning of the word gospel. 
The gospel is the end of the war and a proclamation of freedom. God sent his one and only son, and we killed him. But when we did, what happened? God took away the punishment that we deserved, and the power of God through his spirit came to us. And so the moment that you see your own hate, the moment that you see that resistance, the Holy Spirit has been working in your life and giving you power, power to heal from that hate. Until then, you don't have peace. There's this passage in the Old Testament about Naaman. It's kind of an obscure passage. Naaman was a Syrian general who sent uh, his messenger uh, to the prophet Elisha for healing because he was, he was incredibly uh, ill. And uh, Elisha uh, basically tells him, I need you to come and bathe in the Jordan River, and then you're going to be cleansed. But Naaman is irritated. Why? Naaman's saying, I'm an important person. Why didn't Elisha come to me? Why did I have to go to him? Why do I have to go to that dirty river and be cleansed? Most of us are like Naaman. We have terms when we go to God. I'll go, but you owe me. Let's lay out the terms. You see, that's, that's, we're like Naaman. We go to God with our resume, and basically what we say is, here's who I am, and therefore give me some healing. And our resume, what we've done, all of the things that we've done, we've lived a good life, we've done all these other things, we've gone to church, maybe grown up, uh, we've been obedient, whatever it is, we go to God with our resume as a means to our healing because that way we've had something to do to contribute to our own healing. But as much as we need it, we're not willing to negotiate certain things in our lives. For Naaman, he wanted the healing desperately, but he wasn't willing to sacrifice his reputation. They were his idols, his reputation, his status. Why do I, a Syrian general, wealthy and powerful, have to go to a dirty river to wash? And his servant asks him, are you too proud to be healed? And so Naaman relents. He goes and gets washed, and he's completely healed. He's cleansed. And afterwards, he says, I've been so foolish. He's been changed. Unless you're willing to see your hatred towards God, you won't have peace. Now, how do you know you have peace? And the answer is you're able to worship before you are at war with God. Now you're his child. You're his son. A son is in a son has access to his father anytime. It doesn't matter if you're the president. It doesn't matter if you're a king. You could be in heavily uh, engaged in peace talks in the middle of a meeting. Your son can come right. He's the only one who has the right to just walk through the door and give you a hug. That's how a son is treated. In your word of encouragement, you have what you call the beatific blessing. May the Lord bless you. Keep you. If you've ever been in a church, you've heard it before, in a benediction or something like that. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make your face shine upon you. Be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. Now, the way Hebrew poetry is written, it's often written in stanzas where you have one line that's, that makes a statement, and then the following lines is an explanation further to that statement. So, may the Lord be with you 
may the Lord bless you and keep you, is the same thing as making his face shine upon you and being gracious to you, which is the same thing as turning his face towards you and giving you peace. One thing is just a greater elaboration of the next. In other words, seeing God face to face is about access to God. When we say, when we're just disgusted with someone, what do we do? We turn around. We say, I don't even want to talk to you anymore. So he's saying, may the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. The end of the war. Let him show his grace towards you. Access to God is the blessing. Access to God is the peace. The end of the war. You've given up control and now there's peace. Like Naaman. You've given up. You've surrendered, and so you're clean, and you realize now I've been so foolish all my life for not doing this. Before, my life was all about performance. Now, I'm no longer afraid of how I perform because I'm accepted, and my acceptance is not based on what I've done, what I've accomplished, my merit, my record, my performance. There's peace. You see that? That makes you a peacemaker. You can now go and proclaim the good news, the end of the war, because it's happened to you. And because it's happened to you, it's so transformed your life. You are now able to go. Now, it doesn't mean that you become the kind of person that doesn't ruffle feathers or rock the boat. It can't be because Jesus Christ always ruffled feathers. He always rocked the boat. How do you know then that you've become a peacemaker? If peace begins by you admitting that you have hostility towards God, Subtle, hidden, subterranean, under the skin, in the heart. If you can admit that, then peacemaking begins with the announcement, the proclamation of good news. The war is over in my life. You can say, I've given, I've surrendered. You know, I was arrogant and foolish, and I'm driven by all these things. And look, you know, when there's a passage in the Bible in the book of Luke, the gospel according to Luke, Zacchaeus, he's this tax collector, and he is this, this uh, he's grown wealthy, basically, by cheating his own people. And they were regarded kind of the way we regard drug dealers in our day today, the people they hung out with, the kind of money and the way they earned their money. And so here's Zacchaeus, but he wants to see Jesus. His life has been changed, shaped by Jesus. And so Zacchaeus, being a short man, climbs up this tree, and he's looking for Jesus. What does Jesus do? Jesus calls him to come down. He says, I need to be with you. I need to eat with you. It's a sign of intimacy. And Zacchaeus says this because everybody is chattering. Everyone's talking, this man eating with sinners. How can he take this guy in, this dirty, vile person? And Zacchaeus says, look, I know that I was like that, but I've paid back four times what I've done. In other words, wealth isn't what controls my life anymore. I want to be shaped by you. Jesus says, I must eat with you today. Friends, when Jesus was born, the angels proclaimed what? Peace on earth, goodwill to men. The war is over. You can say then that you can say to your friends, to others around you, you know, I love you, you're my man. I, you know you trust me, I trust you, but you're at war. I can see it in the way you live your life. You're still at war with God, and you need to make peace. You can help to free your own friends from their idols. 
Sometimes we do that by bringing relief. Sometimes we do that by bringing comfort. Sometimes we do that by helping them. Sometimes we do that by forgiving them. Sometimes we do that by reconciling them to the Father, helping to do that, brokering that deal, brokering that encounter. But the point is, you have been transformed. You have experienced this peace, the end of the war, in your own life, and it makes you a peacemaker. Before, it was all about you. Your relationships were about you. Your, uh, your schoolwork, your work, your promotions, the bonus, it's all about you, building yourself up. And so what happens is everything that you do, everything, all your relationships, everything is about you. You prayed about what you want. Now what are you doing? You're praying about why am I in this person's life and how can I encourage that person about what God is doing in him or in her. You're bringing peace to others who are at war. Before, you were angry. Before, you were anxious and depressed. Now, you can help to set other people free from their anger or their unrest or their anxiety or their depression. That's an empowering thing. That's a supernatural thing. Why does it lead to persecution then? Now, first of all, you have to understand that every beatitude that you read here Every beatitude here is true of all Christians. Jesus is talking about one kind of person, not eight different types of people. So every beatitude is true for all Christians. It's not, only, it's not like only some people are meek and some people are merciful and some people are mourning in heaven. They all are meek. They're all poor in spirit. They all mourn. Everybody. That means that all Christians are persecuted too. By the way, the Bible isn't saying that everyone who is persecuted is a Christian. You can be persecuted more so because you're being arrogant or because you're unpleasant. Even if you are a Christian, even if you are in the church, just because you're persecuted doesn't make you a Christian, okay? If no one, if no one is attracted to you because of your love or if no one goes against you because of your integrity, you may not be a Christian, in actuality. If you're always being persecuted, it's probably because you're not a humble person. If no one ever persecutes you, it's probably because you are not bold. A Christian is both humble and bold at the same time. I'm going to give you an example. Think about this. If in, if in your career, you don't cut corners, but you don't overwork, and you're hardworking, and you're honest, uh, it may make other people look bad because of your integrity, because of your work ethic, but also because of your commitment to your family, your relationships, outside the things that you do outside of your work. You're going to get persecuted. You're going to get persecuted. They're not going to trust you with your minds. They're, they're going to be cold to you, maybe even leave you out of certain circles, right? That's their emotions. They may resist your direction if you get promoted. They may go against you or betray you, right? That's with their will. So with their mind and their heart and their will, they're going to be dissociated, disintegrated from you. And that's going to affect you at work. That's going to affect your heart and your mind, 
right? Your will, it may affect your review. That's hostility. That's persecution. Jesus says in verse 11, blessed are you when people speak against you, discredit you, look down on you. You're blessed. He says rejoice. He doesn't say take it on the chin and just keep pressing forward because the Holy Spirit's going to give you that power, and he may, but he says rejoice. Worship. Why? How? Why would you do that? Helen Rosevere was uh, a missionary, a female missionary to the Congo in the early 1900s. And uh, she wrote a ton of books. Um, she is hailed as probably one of the greatest missionary risk takers in the history of uh, our Western culture. And uh, she's a brilliant person. Uh, she writes in her biography, her memoirs, uh, that whenever she makes a decision to do something, she likes to assess all the data and kind of make a determination. Is it really worth it? And if she says, yes, it's worth it, she moves forward. All her life decisions, she said, she made by assessing the value and worth of something. And if she doesn't deem it worthy, she doesn't move forward. If she does deem it worthy, she will move forward. And when she entered in uh, to the continent of Africa, I believe in the Congo, there she was oftentimes arrested, beaten, raped multiple times. Raped multiple times. And she says one time it was so bad that she was on the ground in pain, wailing and crying, no help around her. And there she asked herself, is this worth it? Is this worth it? And she said, there she sadly confessed, no, this cannot be worth it, not this. And she said, there a still small voice entered into her, saying, Helen Rosevere, the question is not, is it worth it? The question is, am I worth it? And she said there in her broken state, she responded, Oh Lord, you are worth it. If anything, the question is, am I worthy? She writes, I gave up nothing but gained everything. And so I may be called to do something. Why was Jesus worth it at all? Why is Jesus worth it? Look at the faithfulness of Jesus, Jesus Christ. He's pure in heart. When Jesus was in the wilderness, there he was hungry, there he was weak, and there Satan himself tempted Jesus three times. And what did he say? What did Jesus respond? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He was quoting scripture. With his mind, there was peace. His friend Lazarus, a good friend of his, dies. And everyone around him is weeping, some of them blaming him for not having arrived earlier to heal him. And he himself wept. But at the grave, you know what he does? He thanks the Father. He thanks the Father. There is peace with your emotions. At the Garden of Gethsemane, on the night he was betrayed and arrested, knowing what would happen to him because of his own love for his father, there knowing exactly what he's going to suffer and endure for his father because of his father and because of the people that he loves, he says, not my will, but yours be done. 
there is peacemaking with his will. All through his life, Jesus Christ demonstrates a singular focus, heart, mind, soul, strength, integrated. He was pure. He was pure in heart. He was at peace with God, brought that peace to others. The high king came down, proclaimed the gospel, literally says, the kingdom of heaven has come. Proclaims the gospel, reaches the lepers and the poor, the meek, the broken, the people who are outcasts, he brings them in. He's standing before a group of Pharisees. There, a woman completely broken, caught in the act of adultery, caught in the act of adultery, about to be stoned. There, after dismissing the Pharisees, one by one, they left because they could not refute Jesus. She stands and he says to her, has no one condemned you? She says, no one, sir. He says, neither do I. He's proclaiming the gospel there. He says, I do not condemn you. Go now and leave this life of sin. You see that? Proclaiming the gospel, setting people free of their idolatries, forgiving them. That was his life. Heart, mind, soul, strength, mission, vision, mind, will, emotions. He was at peace with God and brought others to peace with God, and yet he was persecuted all the way to the cross. What makes Jesus Christ worth it? Because Jesus Christ saw all the suffering that we, that he would endure for our sins because of our idols, because of our hatred, and yet because we were worth it. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, the joy set before him, that means he was glad to do what he was doing. He endured the cross, scorning its shame. We are that joy. You are are that joy. And so to the end, Jesus keeping that joy before him remained integrated all the way even as his body was being disintegrated, torn apart on the cross. He remained pure in heart, peacemaking to his death. There is a criminal crucified next to him and says, well, he says, will you remember me? Will you remember me today? And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. To the end, proclaiming the gospel. No matter what he goes through, come what may. And yet on the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus Christ, on, in body, torn apart, emotions ripped apart as he saw his friends betray him, the religious leaders betray him, people hurling insults at him, persecuted and then on the cross, the Father rejects him. Father and Son torn apart, disintegrated on the cross. And there he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, where is God now for me? God has rejected me. That means I no longer see God. Why? So that you could be pure in heart. The wrath of God is pouring out on me. I'm experiencing the ultimate war with God. Why? So that you can experience the peace of God. And yet to the end, to the end, he still calls him my God. He doesn't hate God. To the end, to his death, he remains integrated. Into your hands I commit my spirit, he says. 
To the end, he loved God. To the end, he trusted God. To the end, he was faithful to God's people. When you see what Jesus did for you, because you are his treasure, you will see how beautiful he is. You know what that means? You see God. Your heart is already becoming pure in heart. You see God. You're becoming pure. Jesus becomes your treasure. Jesus becomes worth everything. You can say, I gave up nothing. I gained everything. I may be called to do something. You're called to be a peacemaker. You may get persecuted. You will get persecuted. If you live a life of integrity, that's counterintuitive in this world. If you live a life of forgiveness, that's counterintuitive in this world. You've given up nothing, but you will gain everything. Let's pray.